Welcome. We're starting. We're doing our series on eternal rewards, and we're up to number six. And we're looking at the issue of victors' crowns. So tonight, the message will be on victors' crowns. I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction because each time we just need to pick up uh, a few things, uh, just so we're reminded uh, of where we've been. And so the first thing is, of course, in, in our introduction, is Jesus taught about eternal rewards. In fact. All of his message was about a kingdom that was here now and then a kingdom that was coming. And so you'll find the theme running right through scripture is uh, something from the very beginning where a man and a woman come together and there's a wedding. Uh, and at the very end, there's a wedding of Christ and his, uh, and his bride who's prepared herself. And so the Bible is an unfolding revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not our story. It's his story. And it's all about the Father's plan and how it unfolds. And so as we look at eternal rewards, we uh, find that Jesus taught in many different places about the kingdom and about rewards. One scripture in Matthew 16, 27, But the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. And that reward is a recompense. So it's got nothing to do with being saved. So we need to then distinguish what it means to be saved and what it means to be rewarded for service. Receiving a reward is different to receiving a gift. If you receive a gift, it's free. There's no strings attached. It's a gift. You did nothing. It was all dependent on the person who gave. But a reward or a wage is something that you have contributed effort, time, sacrifice, labor, and now there's a recompense for what you've done. So the free gift of eternal life is offered uh, to every man. God's uh, plan of salvation includes every person. It's totally by faith and by faith alone. Here's a scripture. There's, there's others like it. Uh, in Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and even that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not works, lest anyone should boast. So It's very clear in that scripture there. There are no works involved in us being saved. We are saved totally by the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And his work on the cross has made full provision for us to be redeemed out of sin and curses and established in a relationship with, uh, with uh, God and with him as a father. So we're justified by what Jesus did totally. And you have to have that as a foundation for your life. Otherwise, when we teach on eternal rewards, you move from that foundation and then you begin to work to try and gain acceptance with God. So to be saved by faith means I'm now declared innocent. I'm now in relationship with God. I can't do any more to make him love me more. I can't do any more to be more accepted. I'm accepted fully by what someone else did. However, now that I have become saved, I'm part of God's plan. And his plan is not just to save me. Many uh, people uh, consider or their whole understanding of the cross and the work of uh, of the and the things described in the Bible is it's all about us being saved and going to heaven, and this of course is not the plan. The plan that was the the glitch in the plan <laughs> was that we uh, man fell and and God implemented a process for us to be restored. But it's the restoration and back into His purpose is the thing that really counts, mm -hmm. and we could share a little bit more on that in another time. So reward for service is a recompense for something you have done. Uh, it's, a, it's something you receive because you qualified. So in this situation, you qualify or you don't qualify. 
and uh, the rewards are not given automatically they're given to those who fulfill specific conditions so when we read particularly say for example in Revelations 2 and Revelations 3 you get number of promises and they're spread through book of Revelation promises that have conditions attached so for example in Revelations 3:21, to him who overcomes I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne and in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So notice there in that scripture, God will honor those who serve Jesus. From God the Father's point of view, the whole of the Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole of his plan centers around the person of Jesus Christ. Notice there that other scripture to him who overcomes. That means there must be something we have to overcome. So the book of Revelation 2 and 3 lays out different things that we're called to overcome and different promises for the overcomers. So we looked at the different kinds of rewards. We're going to pick up one today called the victor's crowns. But um, there are there's different ways you could organize the rewards. But as I've gone through them and looked at them, they really fall into three principal categories. And so all of the rewards can uh, literally be placed under one of these headings. So wherever you find one of the rewards, you can put it under one of these headings. The first one would be eternal intimacy, eternal intimacy. And uh, eternal intimacy means that God is inviting us into the very same intimate relationship and fellowship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have. They had that relationship before time even began. And now they invite or call us to enter in and experience a deep level of intimacy that they enjoy. And you can see Jesus describes that in John chapter 17, which is that the love that you have for me may be in them and I in them. So it's hard to fathom what that would look like. It's hard to even imagine that the deep intimate connection that God has with the Son and the Holy Spirit and the fellowship they have, that God's desire is to include us into that so we would be part of that and enjoy face-to-face -face encounter with all that goes with that. The second uh, category of eternal reward is the area of eternal authority uh, and that implies responsibility. And so God invites us to share ruling uh, with him uh, and that means his, his plan is that we would rule with him over all of his creation. So it's not just the earth. It doesn't just include the earth. It includes all that he has created. So again, it just blows the mind to try to comprehend that even just when it comes to the millennial kingdom, that God will have a people. He will empower supernaturally. He will give responsibility that will involve the restoration of the whole earth, working with Jesus Christ to bring the whole earth, all its government, all its uh, systems, education, social systems, everything into alignment with the Father's kingdom for a period of unprecedented peace. But it doesn't end at the end of that kingdom. It, uh, a millennial era, it goes on for the ages and ages and ages. Uh, Isaiah 9 says, of the increase of his government, there's no end. Meaning that what God will do is work with us and through us to expand his dominion through vast regions of the physical universe. Uh, the third thing is uh, eternal glory or honor. And so God invites us 
into uh, his, his plan is for us to enter and have a resurrection body that would enable us to enter into his throne room, to engage him face to face, and would be able to express his glory. And uh, so uh, there are many different ways that God intends to honor and produce glory for us. And so one of them we look today will be the crowns. So the, the, the last thing before we get into the study for today that I want to share about a little of is just to raise the issue of God's design for sonship. And uh, sonship is a key aspect of God's eternal purpose. So when we unfold what God planned before the world was even created, one part of that is the father would have a family of sons who would be in the exact image of Jesus Christ. So God so delights in Jesus, he wanted to create a family like him that would also enjoy the same relationship with him. So that's a whole area that we'll do. It's another series. I'll probably do a seminar later this year on that. But here's some key concepts of that. And what you'll notice in the key concepts of what it means to be son is it matches the rewards. Just extraordinary how they just all overlap with one another. So if I just throw this in at this time and then we'll get on to today's study. So in John 17, verse 3 through to 6, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So notice there, he says that eternal life has to do with intimacy, experiential knowledge of God. So again, intimacy, where his, he invites us as a son into an ever-deepening intimacy. So you can't stay where you are. God calls you to know him more deeply, more intimately. That requires engagement with him, it requires worship, it requires seeking him, it requires a life that pursues him. The second thing, uh, which is a characteristic of sonship, is having an assignment. So notice in verse 4, he says, I've glorified you on earth, I have finished the work you have given me to do. So this season of our life on earth is a season of preparation for our big assignment. We get lots of little assignments, and they are... Some, uh, 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 an area of responsibility that God gives to us, an area that we're called to uh, faithfully fulfill, and uh, each assignment we faithfully fulfill prepares us for our next assignment, which would be larger. And so one of the key areas that God requires, of course, is faithfulness, that we are faithful for what's entrusted to us, and we persevere and see through the assignment he's given us until we've finished it. As Jesus said, I honored you or glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. So we're not called to do everything. We're called to know what God has spoken into our heart to do. He's wired it into our, uh, our makeup and he uh, speaks prophetically to our heart what he calls us to do. And so you notice there those two, tra those two aspects or functions of sonship, intimacy and an assignment, relate to the eternal rewards, which is a much deeper intimacy and a much greater connection with the Father and with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and also a greater level of assignment. And, uh, and lastly, in verse 6, he says, I've manifested your name to the men you've given me out of this world. Uh, and, and what he's saying there is, I have demonstrated your character. So that speaks to us of transformation, the need for each of us to be transformed progressively in our character, so the fruit of God's Spirit. Uh, is manifested through our name. So when we teach on sonship, you'll discover that sonship has three phases to it. The first phase is being adopted or brought into the family where we become a child of God and we're what's called technon, a young child, one who has the nature of the father, one who is part of the family. Then we are brought into the process of preparation 
where we come under the training of the Holy Spirit who trains our character and prepares us and then finally God positions us into our sonship uh, at the coming of uh, second coming of Christ and in that positioning into our sonship that's when we enter into all these experiences that we, we, we talk of here. So one of the key then aspects uh, of, our, of, of our journey as a child of God is we let God transform us. That means healing, deliverance, character transformation, shifting beliefs, changing the way you think, all those kinds of things. Okay, so now that gives us our bringing up to it. So now we want to look at one specific aspect of reward called the victor's crowns. And so if we look at victor's crowns, um, then you'll find that, of course, it's obvious that they all come under the heading of honor, all come under the heading of honor. But anyway, we'll have a look through the crowns. So the Bible tells us then that some believers will receive crowns, and a crown is bestowed as an honor or an award to recognize someone. So if someone's wearing a crown, then you know they're recognized. You see immediately they've got a crown on. It tells you then they've got a reason for the crown. There's some something that is... Uh, some reason behind them having that crown. So in the Bible, there are two words used for crown. The first one is diadem, diadem, and the second one is stephanos, stephanos. So I'll just explain what the two different ones are, and what we will focus on today is stephanos. So first of all, diadem means the crown of a ruler. So if a, if a person is a king or a ruler, he has a diadem on. That's a special type of crown that acknowledges that he has got authority and he rules has dominion. So, for example, in Revelations 19.12, talking about Jesus, his eyes were a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. So the whole concept of a crown, it comes from the um, thing where they used to have a cap or a turban and uh, there was some form of metallic plate or thing that circled the head that had jewels on it. So you look at the crown jewels, you look at the queen's crown, the magnificent, rich, uh, and it says of Jesus, he has many crowns. So obviously, you can't wear many crowns. He's talking in terms of a spiritual picture that Jesus has, uh, has all authority over everyone. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Therefore, he has many crowns. Uh, he is literally what you call the emperor over an empire. You don't hear that word used much, but he literally is an emperor. He has an empire made up of kingdoms and kings over those kingdoms, and he rules the kings. And so uh, he's called the king of kings and lord of lords. So the crown represents his royal position, his royal honor, and his authority. And uh, so Christ now reigns as king over the whole of the universe, not because he was the son of God, but because as the son of man, he gained that honor. So it tells us in, say, for example, Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, it says uh, uh, um, that Jesus is the center of God's purpose, He worked, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power, might, dominion, every name that's named, not only in this age, and the age then, but also the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. So notice here he says he's far above every principality and power, every, every dominion, every authority. His ranking is far, far higher, far, far above. And it says he will reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Then he'll present the kingdom back to the Father. Meaning that Jesus is now in that position, but he, when he is crowned, he will return to earth and then 
He will gather to himself his people, invest in them authority and power in a resurrection body, and they with him will then bring the whole of the earth and creation into order over a period of a thousand years. So he wears the crown of a ruler. So there's another crown, and that's the crown of a victor. That's a different crown. So a crown of a ruler is someone who sits over a, a place, they rule over it, they have the responsibility to rule and govern. But the victor's crown is someone who won. That's the word Stephanos. And, and the first reference you find to that is in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 25. And uh, Paul's writing says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. For everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. And uh, so the second of the crown there is the word Stephanos, and that's the wreath or the garland that they put on someone who is the, the winner of a race. And uh, it comes from the word stepha, meaning uh, to, uh, to entwine or a wreath that encircles the head. And so it was either someone who won a race, someone who ran a fight, or it also referred to a, um, a, uh, a Roman emperor or a Roman commander who came back from a battle and he's won the battle and he's wearing it. So the Bible talks about five different crowns. So they may overlap, they may, some of them may mean the same thing. It's not always easy to tell, but they do refer to five different crowns, and that's what we're going to look at. So each one then must represent a different uh, award or a prize you have to contend for. And uh, they're a crown then, if a crown is awarded to you, then it's a, it's a visible, tangible sign to everyone you won. So <laughs> the winner's crown means you won. Everyone who knows, who sees you with it, they know you're the winner. So we tend to have a medal around the neck and it's got number one or first place. Everyone knows you won. So the crowns are incorruptible. That means they will go on forever. So forever we will have uh, something given to us that acknowledges the kind of race that we run and the kind of battles we fought. And they will no doubt differ from person to person. Um, so crowns are very important to God. He designed, for example, when the high priest's garments were defined, God gave exceptional detail in Exodus 28 about the high priest's garments. And one of the things he gave detail to was the crown that he would wear. So the high priest had a, uh, had a head covering, a turban kind of head covering, and then a golden plate which had on it holiness to the Lord and jewels and various other things. So... Obviously, if you win a crown, it's a treasured possession. That's why people put their, you know, their things they've won, they put them up on a wall, and everyone coming in, there's an honor presented. It's visible. So when we win a crown, one of these five crowns, it's clear for all eternity that we have won a crown. The honor will be recognizable. So let's first of all look at the incorruptible crown, the one we've just looked at it. And uh, so we go back in there. And don't you know that those who run in a race run all? So Paul's using the term uh, run a race. He's referring to the Roman public games. And what he's saying is that naturally there was a certain kind of lifestyle and a certain kind of preparation they all went through. And their goal was to win in the games because they won in the games. Then they got a wreath and they got the crown, the victor's crown. And not only get the victor's crown, they got also a stone with their name in it. And that gave them access to public events free of charge. In other words, they were honored. So he's saying not everyone, notice he says, not everyone wins the race. So he's saying then it is possible as a believer, 
you won't complete your race. It's possible as a believer you will drop out of your race. Mm -hmm. It's possible as a believer you will not do what's required to complete or to win the race. And so he says there's a prize. Uh, he says one receives the prize. Uh, so in the Roman games, uh, each race that was run, only one got the prize. And he's not saying that for us. Everyone can win the prize. However, you've got to do what's required for you. And that's an individual thing. So the crown or the prize is a crown awarded to the victor at the public games. And it was a symbol of the reward. So notice he says in the public games, it's corruptible. In other words, the garland eventually withers. And after a while, you're just an old dried up set of leaves. But he said, we're after something that's absolutely incorruptible. It goes on for eternity. So he says then, if they put in all the effort for something natural that gets withered after a while, how much more should we put in the effort needed for something that is totally incorruptible that will last for eternity? So he says, run your life or run your race. Fulfill your following the Lord in such a way that you win the prize. And the word obtain or win the prize means to possess or take a hold of it. So if you look through there, you'll see there are three, four different things that he points out in, those, in that passage there that, that are required for winning the crown. Four things. Okay, so let's have a look at them. Number one, we need to value the prize. Number one, we need to value the prize. If you don't know there's a prize, you won't put a value on it. You won't change your life to win the prize. So Paul knew, the value, knew that there was a prize and he knew the value of the prize. So you see him say this in Philippians 3, verse 7 and 8. He says, For the things that were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I count everything loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish, that I might gain or win Christ. So what he's saying then, he says, he knew exactly what was at stake. He was caught up to heaven. He had a heavenly vision where God showed him his eternal plan and showed him what was at stake. And then he tries to express it and write it. So when he's writing this, he's saying, I see what it is. Everything else is nothing. Because everything else, well, you'll leave it behind. But this is eternal. And it's about winning Christ. Um, and so if we don't know this a prize, we won't value it. So he valued the price to the point where he said, nothing in my life compares to this. Whereas in contrast, Esau didn't value the prize. And so he placed no value on it. He traded away for a bowl of beans, which is where many Christians are. They either don't know the inheritance God has, or if they do know, they trade it away because they don't value it. And so many people come into the church, but without a vision of eternity, of a vision of preparing, a vision of running the race, a vision of actually what God has in store for them, then they place no value on the price needed to get there. There's no internal uh, desire and longing that I can actually experience that. And so uh, God speaks then about uh, Jacob and Esau and how he loved Esau, uh, loved Jacob uh, and hated Esau. It's not that he hated him. It's just he's trying to say, trying to bring a contrast. This one is precious to me because he valued the inheritance. This one, the contrast is like love and hate because actually he placed no value on it whatsoever. And so uh, <clears throat> it talks about that in Hebrews 12, verse 16, 17. So the first thing is value the price. Second thing, we need to run with determination. Notice what he says in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 9. I run this way, not with uncertainty. Not with uncertainty. So he says, I run with determination. The word uh, un, uh, uh, not uncertainly means uh, something's, 
something's not clearly identified as a goal. And he said, so he said, I run with certainty. I've got a determination. That means literally a fixed intention to achieve a goal. A fixed, in other words, he said, I have set my life on this goal of winning that prize. I've set my life on fulfilling my course. And so if we don't actually run with determination with a goal in mind, we never do what's needed to win. So any of you have achieved anything, know like you just if it's a weight loss or it's winning a race or it's right, whatever it is, there's a work needed to be able to do it. You've got to decide you're going to be determined because on the way you just feel like quitting, giving up or whatever, even getting fit. You've got to be determined that's what's going to happen or you'll quit on the way because the cost or the pain or the difficulty. The third thing is you need to engage the enemy. Notice he says in 1 Corinthians 9.26, he said, Thus I fight not like someone who beats the year. So he's, he talks firstly about racing and running a race. And uh, there's a prize to be won and you've got to run. And we'll talk about what else you need to do too in a moment. And the second thing, and he, he shifts and he begins to talk about a fight. And he says, I'm in a fight. And he says, I'm not a shadow boxer. Shadow boxer is someone who's a practicer. And so uh, a shadow boxer... They have an imaginary opponent and they're just playing. They're just hitting the ear. They're not hitting anyone. It's just all actually just a practice. He actually looks like he's fighting, but he's not hitting anyone. And not only not only hitting anyone, no one's hitting him either. So it's just all a lot of effort and it's all about practice. But uh, notice that most shadow boxers just practice in the gym. So there's never any real conflict. And that that is where many believers are. They actually never really engage the enemy in any kind of real way. They never stand in spiritual warfare. They don't stand and push out into the spirit. So they never face the kinds of reactions that come when you determine you're going to take ground in your life or take ground in a ministry or take ground in your business or whatever. There's a fight against hidden spirit powers. And that, that's a real fight. They come for you and they're nasty. And there's a pressure. There's all kinds of conflicts you go through. So many believers never get involved in that. So they never get involved in the difficult work of being involved with dealing with spirits or in the difficult work of working with people. They'd rather just look spiritual and, and so on without actually engaging and involvement. So Paul talked very clearly that our, our warfare is not with people, it's with spirit beings and they do resist. So he's saying then, he said, I'm not a shadow boxer, I get into it. And when I get into it, I'm going for it to, to win that fight. You know, I'm not backing down. So our fights are against spiritual powers and also against temptations and various kinds of distractions. So the third thing, the fourth thing he says, uh, the, the next thing he says in there, so no, firstly, value the prize. Secondly, run with determination, gauge the enemy. And then the last one is develop a focused lifestyle. So notice he said, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. So temperate means showing self-control. It means moderation. You won't need anything take control of your life. So all things are good, but you just don't let anything run control of your life. So basically, if you think <clears throat> about someone training for Olympics, they're careful with their diet, they're careful with their sleep, they're careful with their exercise, mm. a highly disciplined life. Mm. And he's saying that that's the kind of life we need to be living, mm. a disciplined life that's bringing honor to God and not just indulging, going, doing this and doing whatever we want. So he said he disciplined his, his body and that was through fasting through fasting, the discipline of fasting, the discipline of his body, he said, lest uh, I be disqualified. So he said, having preached to others, I might be disapproved or disqualified or a castaway. Isn't it interesting? So he talks about the, pri the, the race with a prize, the fight and the need to win, 
And then he talks about, he said, I bring order and discipline to my life in, in case, having preached to everyone else and told them all these things, I'm then when, my, when I get assessed, I didn't make it because I had too many things going on in my life privately. And of course, that's what you see frequently with people in ministry. You find they look really great. There's a great gifting. There's a great blessing, great ministry. And then suddenly there's a collapse. And you think, disapproved. Why? There was some hidden thing that they never ever dealt with. They never let their body be sorted out, never disciplined their inner life. So a, a second thing um, related to this area is, um, he, 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 you notice what he says when he talks about the, run, he, the running the race. He said, you run, everyone runs, but you so run to obtain. Of course, then in, in the book of Hebrews, he talks about also about running the race. And in this case, he talks about weights and things that hold us back. So in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, let us, uh, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us cast aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's a lot in there. I'll just highlight some things for you. Firstly, you notice he exhorts us to run the race, to, to run the race with endurance. There's an endurance needed, and there are weights and things that hinder us. We need to realize they're there and address them. So he tells us then, uh, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So what's the sin that ensnares us? Uh, that word ensnare means to stand around you, surround you, distract you. So he said, what is the sin that surrounds us? constantly seeks to distract us uh, it's most likely the sin of unbelief the loss of confidence and faith in God because we're going through hardship or disappointments or difficulties that's most likely the reason for that and so it could also um, apply to a particular sin or a stronghold that you struggle with so he's saying then so for each person what is the sin that most easily taps into our life probably unbelief where we stop believing that and trust God, that his word's reliable, that he'll see us through and so on. So there are often other things that snare us as well. So I think everyone's got their struggles that they have their own unique kind of things to get over. Secondly, he says, it's good, not, not, not just the sin that ensnares us, but also every weight. So weight is something that hinders you or burdens you. So in the Roman races, they would actually take off all their clothes. They'd run naked so that they had nothing to hold them back. So if you want to be a winner, you've got to make sure nothing holds you back. There's no hindrances. There's no burdens. So we're to cast them off. So what are some of the weights? You could probably think of a few yourselves. But uh, here's a few just to think about. Uh, unresolved issues are a weight. You think of people carrying offenses, bitterness, judgments, issues of the heart, unresolved grief. All of those things are weights. That's where the ministry of healing and deliverance is so needed. It's to actually help you let go of the weights, apart from the issue of transformation. Uh, abuse, betrayal, addictions, all of those things hold you back. So you may run, but you always can't give your best because you've got something holding you back. Ungodly heart beliefs can be another thing where you just believe lies. You, you believe that you're not good enough. You believe you'll never make it, that you can never do anything right. So there are many... There are many lies in the heart that act as a weight to success. Uh, ungodly relationships can hold us back. Uh, relationships, God gives us a relationship to accelerate us towards our destiny. The devil brings them in to bring us back. 
So I can remember one stage we had a whole group of uh, women, probably in their 40s, 50s, we won to the Lord. And uh, not one of them had had a man in their life for years. Within six months, all of them had gone off with some guy. And all of them left the Lord, left the church, left everything. So I, I learned from that that the devil brings people into your life to take you off course. So the person who set their mind to serve God, set their mind on the course, kind of fulfill it faithfully, then often God, the devil will add in people around that are a burden. So you need to just recognize that. So any relationship that is um, consuming your time and energy and it's unproductive probably is a hindrance. So it could be ones that are ungodly, that are abusive or no boundaries, but frequently when it comes to church, you get people that are like vampires. They're just draining your energy, draining your life. There's no response to your wisdom or counsel or direction. They just drain life and they don't go anywhere. So those ones, you've got to boundary them quite strongly. Um, uh, there can be other kinds of relationships, putting someone on a pedestal and making too much of them. Mm -hmm. That's the most common one in churches where there's an idolatry around the minister and that then becomes a burden because then all our life is around that person rather than being centered on Christ. Sure. So these are, these are issues that are, are come up. Uh, we can be involved in it where we, our identity is found in rescuing or helping people wanting to be needed. Those kinds of things then lead you into relationships that are dependent, that people never grow, never mature, never get released. And frequently this is a problem when, when you try to get groups to multiply is that they all attach so strongly to the leader and he never built them to Christ. And now either the leader doesn't want to let go of them or the person doesn't want to let go. And these are problems. These are real things that hinder us in our journey. And then a wrong focus. We just set our eyes on the wrong thing. And uh, when we have a wrong focus in our life, then we do end up being de-energized. And we, we, it, you get discouraged very easily. So it says, set your focus, looking to Jesus, setting your eyes on him, who for the joy set before him, he, he endured the cross and the shame. So there's, uh, that's the first one. That's the crown, the incorruptible crown. So there was a lot in that one. The others don't have quite so much, but I found as I've studied them, I've seen more in each one of them. So there's the first crown, the crown for running the race diligently with your eyes fixed on the prize and doing the discipline in your life to maintain your, right, your, your, your walk. Second one that's uh, mentioned there is called the crown of rejoicing, the crown of rejoicing. And remember, we're not sure whether it's a literal crown, uh, which is visible and seen, or whether it's a form of honor that God puts on us. It's hard to know. It could be both. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, it says, uh, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? It is coming for you are our glory, you are our joy. So the crown of, the rejo of rejoicing is the reward God gives for soul winners. It's each time... The crown of rejoicing is mentioned. It always has to do with uh, people and the winning of people. So everyone that you've helped lead to Christ, win to Christ, played a part in them coming to Christ, uh, that person will be a part of the crown or reward because God places such value on people. And so the church has got to maintain its value on people too. We need to value soul winning. I find it distressing when, uh, you know, like even the, you come to the altar call, how many people just switch off rather than actually being in a place of intercession, prayer, participating in the warfare needed for that person to come to Christ, then helping make them welcome, being a friend to them, incorporating them into their circle. It's like, hello, don't you understand that this is God's heart, that God places high value on souls, that in heaven there's rejoicing over every soul that, uh, that, it, that repents. Um, and so we need to rejoice as well. The simplest thing is just 
when they get saved, give a big clap. When they get saved, smile and welcome them, you know, connect with them, be part of the journey. There's so much in that. And, uh, and, and usually the reason people don't engage like that is because soul winning is not in their heart. Yeah. And because soul winning is not in the heart, then they don't celebrate or participate in the joy of soul winning. So think about this, that the souls that are one in our, in our church are won by a corporate effort mostly. Mm. So therefore there's a corporate reward for mm -hmm. this. So we need to be a soul winning church. Sure. It, it, we become a soul winning church, then the reward that God puts upon us then is distributed around those who participate in it. So those who are involved in necessary prayer, then you're part of that journey. Those who are in the prayer room and they don't even get seen, they're part of that, winning that crown of rejoicing. And so Paul talks about soul winning in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2 through to 11. He's got quite a, a number of uh, things he outlines about the way he works with people. And uh, I'll read it for you and then just highlight them without talking too much about them. He said, uh, so he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, after we had suffered before and were despitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in the midst of conflict. And our exhortation did not come out of error or uncleanness, nor deceit. For as we've been approved of by God to be entrusted with the gospel, we speak not as pleasing men, but as God, but pleasing God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, as a cloak of covetousness or witness. We didn't seek glory in men, either from you or others, that we might make demands as possible. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother nurses her children, affectionately longing for you, well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, because you become dear to us. For you remember our labor, our toil, laboring day and night, that we might not be a burden to you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, we exhorted and comforted and charged you as everyone a father does his own children. So Paul's saying, these are the characteristics I demonstrated that gave me the ability to influence people. So as you look through it, you see a whole number of things. I'll just highlight them for you. Number one, pure motives. So genuine interest in people. No deceit, no error, no uncleanness, no trickery not trying to prove he's right, not trying to get a, get a scalp, I won someone to the Lord kind of thing. You've got to have a genuine love for people. And only God can give us that. The second thing is he was God honoring in his ministry. We speak not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God who tests the hearts. So you notice there in his ministry, he sought to please God alone and is willing to face rejection. He didn't flatter people. He didn't try to influence them to get their money. He didn't try to persuade them to accept them. He just spoke the truth in spite of their reaction. So you notice there he had a fair few reactions. And we suffered before, despitefully treated, and much conflict when we were with you. So he, this was in Philippi. And Philippi, of course, they're all thrown into jail, got beaten up in jail. So he's, he's playing it down, really. But he's saying that when you speak the truth and seek to engage people and not trying to just please them or be nice to them, there will be reactions, and you've got to learn just to handle that because you're seeking to honor God. Uh, the third thing he said was we're gentle. We're gentle like a nursing mother cherishes her children. So he gives a, a, a picture, a metaphor there of how you treat people, like a mother would hold a child and very precious and, and uh, very tender. He's saying that's how he's like with people, easy to talk to, easy to relate to, tender heart and a real love for them. 
He said, uh, he, he spoke of having an authentic lifestyle. He said, we labored day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. So he, he worked so he could support himself. So he could then give his uh, ministry without expecting anything back from anyone. A lot of people don't do that today. A lot of people want everyone to carry them and do things for them rather than actually working so you've got something to give. And finally, he says, we endured conflict. <laughs> he had a positive attitude when he faced conflict. And you read Paul's stories of conflicts, he would have been the hardest person to be with because everywhere he went, there was a fury stirred up against him because he was bold. He just boldly proclaimed the gospel and, and demonic spirits stirred the people up. They would shout. There was one stage there where they were dragged into... Uh, where the people were dragged into, uh, into the middle of the arena and they shouted for two hours non-stop. Didn't even have a chance to say what was going on. In the place he gets stoned and dragged out of town, he just, they gathered around and prayed, he got up and carried on to the next town. It's like unbelievable commitment to, to win people in spite of you know, being knocked back. So we get knocked back, but it's nothing like that. It's just, <laughs> it's just bad attitudes and stupid people you know, and they're doing stupid things. But it's, it's what the, the lesson here is, however people react, you just got to be able to endure it because of Christ. And he's saying the crown, of, the, the crown of rejoicing awaits a soul winner. So those are some things to think about, our motives in working with people, that what we do is honoring to God. It actually doesn't hold back the truth in any way. When working with people, you're gentle with them, not hostile and argumentative, that our lifestyle speaks a message that actually people can see in our life that we're genuine and authentic. And that when there's difficulty, we don't get wimpy and draw back and then get sad and somebody hurt me and I'm offended kind of thing. Uh, and when you look at his story and you think, see what people are like today, it's kind of, oh my, come on guys, come on, tough up. <laughs> so there's the second crown. The third crown is called the crown of righteousness, the crown of righteousness. And uh, he said in, in uh, 2 Timothy 4 verse 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. I love these statements. I fought the good fight. Yeah. This is a good fight. It's a fight to gain territory, to get freedom for yourself or freedom for others. It's a race you're running that requires endurance because it's a marathon. So many start well, but a lot don't see it to the end. And I think of all the things in in our life that's sad is the ones that didn't see it through that started with us yeah. and then when the when the difficulties came as they always come they they walked away mm -hmm. they saved themselves and that's very very sad and that's uh, it, I think a grief when you see that kind of thing happen so he says uh, he's finished the race he kept faith in other words the only way he can really keep in the race and keep in the fight is if you actually hold on to God so, so he declared how he lived a right life. He engaged spirits. He persevered. He overcame temptation. He completed the course, meaning he's completed his assignment right till the very end. And uh, many people say, don't finish their assignment. You give them a task to do. They don't even finish the task, let alone finish a ministry call or finish an assignment in an area. And, uh, and that requires, because there's difficulty, that you maintain faith and you develop a good character. So... Whatever assignment is entrusted to people, it's not just the outcome of it, it's what happens in them as they do it is the key thing. And sometimes we overlook, we think sometimes people come ready, but they're not. People don't come ready, they all come broken and they come needing help to grow. And a lot of the work I do now is helping people understand what God is doing 
and how to respond in the pressure they're in so they grow. So notice there it says, the crown of righteousness. You know, what a great thing to end your life in saying, I finished, I got the end, man, I'm looking forward. My next step is a crown which the Lord has prepared for me. Isn't that exciting? Imagine being able to get the end of your life and you're still full of, oh yeah, I'm just about to graduate. The best is ahead for me yet. I've qualified. Isn't that great to finish your life like that? Yeah. You see that with Roger in the funeral the other day. Absolutely. and it, It's like he finished strong and yeah. in faith and, and, and just positive to the end. You know, I, I love seeing that. Just, man, so you, so you just know that just past that, just that brief period of pain, now there's glory. Yeah. What an amazing thing. What a great hope. And so it says that crown of righteousness, uh, Paul said, not just for him, but for all who love his appearing. So what does it mean to love his appearing? So to love his appearing means to live your life in expectation of the Lord coming and live uh, or behave like it's today. So you live your whole life with the fact that he is coming again and you live every day like it could be today every day like it could be today or another way uh, it means it's like it refers to a bride preparing herself for when the groom is about to come and so um, i broke it down to several things Um, here's four things that to me what loving his appearing might mean the first one if you if you love his appearing the first thing is you want to make sure you're pursuing intimacy. <laughs> There's got to be a pursuit of intimacy. So if you're going to win that crown, then you want to, the first thing in your priority in your life is, I, I want to deepen my relationship with the Lord. And we saw Matthew 25, 6, how the wise had oil in their lamps. They took oil in the vessels and they got that oil because they built time building their relationship. They spent time, they paid the price to have that ongoing connection with him. And uh, the second thing is, that to love is appearing means if, if you, I'll put it, if I use an example first, if you know that someone important is going to come and you know when they're coming, you'll dress up your very best to meet them. Okay, so I think the second thing is, is to commit your life to preparation. Commit your life to preparation or transformation. So that means you're letting God heal the places you're wounded, letting Him set you free, uh, claiming freedom and possessing your own life and freedom and letting God shape your character, grow you through adversities. So I think that it's important we commit our life to let God shape our character. So every assignment you get is not just a job to be done, it's about a character to be formed in it. So sometimes that might just be perseverance. Sometimes it might be just loving the unlovely. Sometimes it's being kind to people that are just nasty and difficult people. Every, sometimes it's standing up and confronting. Sometimes it's ruling over spirits. So every assignment you get, regardless of what the assignment is, within it is the opportunity for you to grow, if you can see it. The third thing is is to make seeking the kingdom of God our first priority. I think that to to love as appearing means you're putting him in his kingdom first. So to love as appearing means we're waiting in expectation for a coming kingdom and all that goes with it. That means I make the priority of the kingdom now, not wait to one day. So the problem for many people is they have other priorities. The Lord and his kingdom is not their priority. They have other priorities. In Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In Romans, uh, sorry, Colossians 3.2, set your affection on things above, not things of the earth. So the Bible is very clear. Make a decision that your focus, your, your priority is always about Jesus and his coming kingdom 
and about your affection being on the things that are eternal, not things that are temporal. It doesn't mean you don't, uh, you have to deal with daily things, but they're not, you're, th you're not fixed on them. So if you listen to people when they talk, you'll find what they're fixed on because they'll talk about it. So sadly, many old people, they're fixed on their, their sicknesses and aches and pains and problems. They get with them, that's all they want to talk about. What you really want is to be talking about the things of God. What is sure. God saying? What's God doing? What's the latest testimony? What, in, other, in other words, our life is centered around Him. Um, and then finally, serving people, serving people. I think that if we are taking a posture of longing for His coming, we, in, in Matthew 24, verse 45 and 46, he talked about the servants in the house, he talking about people in the church. And he talked about two kinds of servant. And the first servant was the wise servant. And it says they gave them, they gave the house meat in, meat in due season. In other words, it's saying that they were current in what they shared with people in the house of God. So if you, if you look at it from a, a preacher, it means simply he's hearing God on what God's wanting to say now. He's bringing a now word, not just some old things. Uh, but for people in the church, it means that we are sharing what God is speaking in our lives. And then it says, if that servant thinks in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. Yeah, not going to happen. Don't worry about it. And then it, it says, that it starts that way. He's no expectation of the coming of the Lord. He says, then he begins to beat the fellow servants. In other words, that means he mistreats other believers. So notice how it starts. The Lord delays his coming. It's okay. No need to get ready. No need to make any changes. I'm in church. I'm okay. And then the attitude to the believers goes off. They start to beat them. Well, we beat people not usually with sticks. It's usually with words. It's the way we treat people, the attitudes and words, the way we treat people. And then it says he begins to eat and drink with the drunk, and his life becomes careless. His friendships become among the unsaved in a way that they, their, their lifestyle influences them. So... I, so those are the four key things I see about what's involved in the crown of righteousness. Loving or pursuing intimacy with the Lord, seeking His kingdom first priority, serving people, and uh, those are key, and, and committing to character transformation. So the crown of righteousness reserved for those who love the Lord and His word enough to let it change their life. Are you growing? Are you changing? Are you pursuing the Lord? Are you serving? Uh, have you been stumbled? And it will not be given to those who say they love the Lord, but they hate their brother. 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. If he can't love the brother, he does see how can he love the one he can't, the God he can't see. Uh, in 1 John 4.21, in this commandment we have from him, he who loves God must love his brother also. So it won't be given to those who love, say they love God, but they've got issues with people and they don't do what God tells them to do. So when you look around again among many believers, you'll say, oh, they say they love God, but it always fronts up, do you do what he tells you to do? Do you apply his word to your life? And when it comes to people, how are you treating them? It's always down to that, always down to that. And so Paul lived his life constantly from a view of eternity. So the, fourth, uh, the, the next crown is called the crown of life, the crown of life, the crown of life. That's the, the, uh, the fourth crown and the fifth crown is the crown of glory. Let me just talk about the crown of life. So uh, here it is found in James 1 verse 12. And uh, it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for after he's been approved or tried, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the crown of life is the reward or honor that God gives us for persevering through tests of our faith, through staying 
with it when the pressure's on to get, let go or overcoming temptation. So it's a reward for trusting God and staying on course. Notice here, blessed is the man who endures temptation. That word temptation means to be put to a test that tests your character, your heart, or the reality of your faith. It says they endure. That means uh, they endure the temptation. They bear it calmly and they carry on without getting all discouraged, disheartened. Okay? And so that's, that's what this is about. And you see many people, they go through a bit of pressure, then they get, oh, they lose their love for the Lord, they stop praying, stop coming, all this kind of thing. They're not passing. <laughs> the testings are designed just solely for this. It's to test your faith and trust in the Lord and uh, the quality of that. It's about developing character. And uh, so there's always tests that come. Now, many believers suffer persecution even to the point of death. So you read right across the world from the beginning of the Bible right through till now, people are dying for their faith. They're having their heads cut off, their throats cut because they refuse to quit. There's people in prison in China, people dying around the world because they refuse to deny Christ. Now, for us, losing our life is probably not like that. It's more like today I stop being focused on myself and I just focus on doing what God called me to do. So every believer is going to experience faith being tested. Everyone. Everyone. You, and there's a reason why it has to happen. So you can either pray for God to rescue you when difficulties come or you can ask God to show you what to do so you can grow through it. That's basically the choice you have. So, you know, people think, well, if I just had that ministry, that'd be great. Actually, no, when you get there, you'll find there's some tests there that'll really try you big time. So, so God desires to mature our, our character. And one of the ways, of course, is through the prayer and intimacy with him. One is through the word of God. But one of the, the ways that God develops us is through the trials of life. So let's read it in James 1. Verse 2 through to verse 8. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, and lack nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubt, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed by the wind. Don't let that man think he'll receive anything. He's double-minded and unstable. Now notice here, there's some key insights here on, on trials. And so he said, they, they're going to come. So he says, when trials or difficulties or pressures or obstacles come, don't collapse. He says, praise and worship, celebrate. Just turn in towards the Lord. And there's a reason for it. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith, it's not to crush you. It's to test whether you really lean on God or not. And so usually the tests come where we lean on something else. And then we start to shake when the pressure comes on. And it's to bring us to lean on the God. He says, here's the thing, that the testing of your faith will produce in your character the quality of endurance. And he says, and, and patience, when it's been complete or done its complete work, it will make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So very clearly then, he tells us here that the first thing we do when we experience difficulties and pressures is to turn into the Lord and praise him for his goodness and his kindness and his faithfulness. And so what, what happens or how you respond when a pressure comes reveals what your heart condition's like. So if the first response is complaining and blaming, that tells you then unbelief is sitting in the heart. You've got to realize that what, what, if, what, if, what if life was not 
random things happening to you. But what if God carefully orchestrated every little situation so it could work to grow in you what he wants to build in you so you can qualify for eternity? What if your perspective of life was instead of fearful of what tomorrow will bring, it's actually my life is fully in the hands of the Lord and every situation that comes, he will turn it for my good. It will actually end up benefiting me. Even the painful things, the the frightening things, the difficult things, all God can use it to bring me where he wants to get me. So instead of seeing the trial as an inconvenience and a burden, I begin to see it as the hand of God preparing me for something bigger. Now that takes an act of faith to do that. That's why it's called the trying of your faith. How you look at it, you'll either see the natural, oh no, oh, yeah. or you see, oh God, wow, what's this one? What have I got to learn here? It's just how you, how you view it. See? And so he says, first thing is rejoice. Start to focus on the Lord, knowing that the trying of your faith or the testing will actually uh, cause about or bring about an endurance. So most people, when they go through tests or difficulties, cry out, God, get me out of here, save me, rescue me, stop this happening, fix it up. They all just want to just, they carry on like a victim wanting to be rescued rather than a son wanting to be grown. And so uh, he says, patience is endurance. That's a person who doesn't waver when the pressure comes on. So God tells us rejoice because it's going to do good. And the second thing he says is ask for wisdom. That, this, that, that passage there where it says in verse 5, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God, is connected to trials. In other words, wisdom means understanding what God is doing and knowing how to respond. Very simple. So, God, what are you trying to teach me in this? How do I, Give me wisdom. Help me see what the real issue is, not just react to the packaging. And, and a lot of the work I do now is helping people see the bigger picture of God at work rather than be caught up in the dramas of badly behaving people. And most of the trials in life come because of setbacks, knockbacks, and badly behaving people. <laughs> Think about it. So, so God, we usually, again, want us to be, we want God to rescue us. He wants you to grow through it. So if you think about this, if you're a parent and you rescue your child from every consequence of their choices, they will grow up totally self-centered and irresponsible. You, you don't do that. You want to actually teach them things have consequences. If you'll face the consequences, you'll grow through it and you'll, you'll learn. So it's similar for God. So he wants us to have wisdom. And so wisdom is the principal thing. We ask for wisdom. You're running through a difficult time. The first thing is set your face towards God and ask for wisdom. Yes. God, what are you trying to teach me? How do you want me to respond? What do you want me to learn? What's coming up in my heart that you're wanting to change? But that's, what I, that's the way to look at it. Your first reference point is God. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, There's no temptation or testing overtaken you that is not firstly common to man. Mm -hmm. Secondly, uh, uh, God is faithful. And thirdly, he's going to provide a way of escape in the midst of it so that you can bear it. So we want God get me out of here. I'll go to another church. I'll go to this. I'll go to that. God says, no, 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 no. I want you to trust me with this one. I got your back in it. And there's a way with the problem comes a solution, except the solution can only be seen by looking through the eyes of faith. Isn't that interesting? Mm. He will with it, with, with the temptation, behind it, following close behind, out of sight, is a solution how you can grow. And so the third thing then is expect to grow. Expect that every situation you face that's difficult, you will mature, grow, come to a greater level of authority. 
when I teach on authority and power, everyone's wanting the power, everyone wants the authority, and no one wants the process to get there. And the process to get there is being able to abide under the pressure so you develop what's necessary that you gain that authority. And uh, so we need to expect to grow. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, it says, Our light affliction, which is just for a moment or temporary, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. But it'll only do that while we do not look at the things seen, but at the things unseen. The things you can see, if you can see it and touch it, it's, it's temporary. So whatever, here's the thing with all problems, they've got a, um, an expiry date. They finish. So maybe you don't know that date, but it has got an expiry date. So we just got to understand that it'll work for us. It's temporary. It won't last. And even if it goes on for months, it still won't last. It will end. And then by the time it's ended, the big thing will not be the problem, which is behind you. What kind of person did you become through that? Isn't that good? Mm-hmm. And so it says, uh, so it's, it'll work for us or it'll shape us so long as we fix our mind on the Lord, on the things unseen. And so Paul writes in, in Romans 8, 18, he said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy compared to the glory revealed yeah, in us. Mm-hmm. It's a great scripture. So the crown of life is reserved for those who love the Lord more in their own life and comfort and hold on to Christ and don't let their love grow, grow cold when they're in troubles. How about that? Mm-hmm. Then the last one, the crown of glory. Here's the crown of glory and we'll finish with this one here. And uh, the crown of glory. So there's another crown, an honor. And he says in 1 Peter 2, 5, verse 2 through to 5, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. It's incorruptible. How about that? So the crown of, the crown of glory is reserved for those who shepherd the people of God. Isn't that wonderful for anyone who's called to lead or shepherd or has a group of people they're leading and shepherding, then God has a crown of glory for you. Jesus called the great shepherd, so he entrusts the pastoring to other people, to under shepherds, and he understands it's a very difficult task. And sometimes it's very frustrating and sometimes it's full of grief. It's often filled with great sacrifice and often you see little result for what you do. And that would describe all of us here who've worked with people. Sometimes it's very frustrating. Sometimes you don't see a lot for what you do. Uh, sometimes people take everything you've given and then walk away with no gratitude whatsoever. All of this is a, this is a sacrifice and it causes a suffering. So we need to understand that we're not in the role because it was a great idea. We're in the role because we were called by God. And because we were called by God into the role, you're certain of two things. One is he will give you grace to stand in it and grow. And two, there's a crown of reward for it. And now in this particular passage, he does speak of uh, what would it would take to qualify for that reward. Uh, there's probably other scriptures related to it, but I'll just take that one since we've done enough already. So he says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain or filthy lucre, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted, but being examples to the flock. So he said, this is what you do. And then when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory. So clearly he connects these instructions to the crown of glory being received. So you call these the qualifying conditions. 
So notice then the responsibilities of the shepherd then is to shepherd the flock. First he says shepherd the flock means to be a friend. It means to provide nurture and nourishment. It means to protect. It means to give your life for them. So a major role of shepherding is to provide the word of God and the flow of the spirit. That's and then encouragement. So if you're going to bring the word of God, we don't want to just say what people want to hear, nice sweet words of encouragement. We need to bring the whole counsel of God. And the problem is often what makes pastoring difficult is when you bring the truth, when you reprove, when you correct, then you find people react. It's just part of the deal. And so uh, if you think about your children, they don't want to eat their vegetables. They'd love to eat the sweets and the desserts and drink the fizzy drink. And you know as a parent, if you do that, they're going to go sick. They're, they're, they're going to lose their appetite for good food. They'll get sick. They'll be unhealthy. So you have to give them a balanced diet. And same in the church. We're not just to teach messages which are sweet, motivational, positive, feel-good messages. We must actually speak messages that involve repentance transformation, addressing the issues of heart and the character. This is a big issue across the world right now. There are many churches, when you go to them, you'll find that what is spoken is not a word that will really build. It's basically wanting people to feel good. And the Bible tells in the end days, we saw that in one of the other studies, that people would uh, turn their eyes, they'd have itching ears, and they'd turn their ears away from the truth, wanting things would just tickle their ears. So we need to be able to say things, and when you say things, say them in the spirit of love, but also bring them from the Word of God. Help people see it. Here's what God says. It's not just me saying this. So it says the second thing is, so firstly is we need to shepherd or nurture people. Secondly is we need to lead them willingly. Willingly means you're doing it not reluctantly or out of a sense of compulsion. So the moment you get any ministry, any job where you are now feeling reluctant, sort your attitude quick. You've got to really repent. God, I'm feeling reluctant. I'm feeling resentful. I'm not too sure why. Lord, I just yield to you to do this 110%. The only way you can get over these bad jobs, unpleasant jobs, or reluctant feelings is if you actually embrace it and do a little more than you were asked, then you kill the bad feelings. So you either say no and not feel guilty, or you say yes and don't feel resentful and do a little extra so you get rid of all those feelings. So the little bit extra you put into it solves that problem. Um, but he's saying that some people don't do things willingly. They do it reluctantly or out of a duty or obligation rather than a love for the Lord and a love for people. Thirdly, he says, lead with pure motives. Don't do it for dishonest gain or exploit. He's talking about leaders exploiting people to advance their reputation or their finances. And again, we see a lot of that around the world. There's a lot of issues come up, uh, particularly around prosperity gospel and so on, and people being exploited by shepherds. Who are using them to to make personal gain so this is quite a challenge but it says when we essentially it uh, what how that would apply to us very simply would be simply this have a purity in your motives don't do it to get something off people don't do it to to to, to later on come back and want something it's just appalling when people do that that they give and serve and then they want something back and it just creates a massive problem so we've, we're supposed to, we, God wants us to have pure, pure, um, pure motives in our work with people. And then the, the last couple of things then, um, you notice there he talks about uh, the purity of motives. Then he goes on to talk then the next thing about uh, uh, serving as an example. 
So in, uh, it says, not lording it over, but being an example to the flock. So Jesus rejected lording over people. That means dominating them, controlling them. Uh, in Matthew 20, 25, he called people to himself and he said, he called his disciples and said, you know the rulers of the Gentile lord over people and they exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. He said, if you want to be great or desire to be great, become a servant. And so he talks there about uh, rejecting trying to control or bring privilege or power or weight or you know all that kind of stuff over people. We're to humbly humble ourselves and to serve them. And that means you, you love people, you're a genuine person, you're in your treatment of them. And uh, so we're to be an example to the flock. So in other words, people watch your life. Man, they watch your life. They watch everything. When you don't think they're watching, they're watching. They are watching. I, we had one lady come up to us and she said, I'd like you to come, I'd like you to pray for me. And I said, okay then. She said, I've been watching you for two years and feel it's safe to get to ask you to, to pray for me. I feel I can trust you. And I said, I'm shot. Two years have been watching me, just the thought of that. So I just, I said, well, what have you been watching? He said, oh, how you treat your wife and how you treat your children and how you treat people who are a little bit strange and unusual or difficult in the church. I watch all of that. I thought, man, everything you do is being watched by someone. Or <laughs> has always been watched by the Lord. And, and she said, I feel I could trust you. Isn't that interesting? So to be an example means you, you model doing something like Jesus would do it. So it's your, they, they, what they look for is your character. They look for your intention. They look for whether you're warm and loving. They look for whether you've got passion in what you do. People read you like a book. So, so that's, that's great, really, because one, you can't hide, and two, you can't hide. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really, it's actually really good. Whereas in a lot of places, everything's all covered and concealed rather than being authentic. So God is wanting us to be authentic. So leadership is just one assignment. There's other assignments we can have. And uh, it's possible, it's possible that the crown of glory is not just for those who lead and pastor the flock, but also for those who follow and honor them. Here's a scripture that seems to indicate that. Matthew 10, 40 and 41, which says, He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. And who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. Receive a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. So looking at that, it's quite likely that if we honor the people that God has sent to us, pray for them, serve them, receive from them, in receiving and honoring and responding, we are positioned for the reward that comes to them, quite likely. So it's just not all okay. And, and lastly, Jesus warned about losing our reward. It is possible to lose your crown in Revelation 3.11, Jesus said, I have come quickly, hold fast what you have, so no one takes your crown. So he's saying, you need to hold fast. Use strength to maintain your walk with me so you rule over your life and don't let anyone take away from you what is rightfully yours. And of course, we look in the Bible, Adam lost his crown and Saul lost his crown. So these are the five crowns. Remember, the crowns are all rewards, different crowns, different forms of honor. Every crown had a reason for being given. And they all come down to God wants to honor you. And he's looking for every possible way he can find something in your life that deserves honor. Okay, so there's quite a lot in that, that uh, session.